podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. And today really is all about you. It's time for another Your Views episode when we take an in-depth look at all your correspondence. So, hello to you, Phil. We've managed to strip out all the really testing questions, haven't we? And we just left ourselves with a nice, easy one. So, that's presented. Exactly. We're, we're uh, recording this on a Monday morning, so it's not the time to be challenged too hard. But yeah, hello. Um, nice to be here, as always. Um, seems like it's been a bit of a quieter week than we've been used to recently. We've been used to these big, dramatic ends to major tournaments. So, not that the WST Pro Series isn't important, but it seems to have been slightly more relaxing this week. I, I certainly agree with that. And I think we have got, actually, I've seen the calendar going forward. We have actually got a day off snooker in about October 2024. <laughs> so that, that's not bad. We know we, they kept us going quite nicely. Oh, I'm going to be bored that day. I'm not going to know what to do with myself. <laughs> well, Bill, it's, as you know, it's always a delight to be with you. But we are delighted to say it's not just us two here to debate your excellent correspondence. We are also joined by the snooker writer Michael Day, the creator of the QView website and community, who now works with several Q Sports organisations and contributes to the sports governing body, the World Professional Billiards and Snooker Association. Michael, it's so nice of you to join us. How are you, sir? Hello, and uh, yeah, th- thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, I'm not not too bad. Y- yourselves? Pretty good. Pretty well, thank you. Yeah, and, and you know, as we did with David Caulfield, who joined us a few weeks ago. I love reading everything you do. Even on Twitter, your love for the game shines through. So I'd like to know a little bit first, if that's okay, about your background in snooker and what gave you that very obvious love of the game. Yeah, well, probably typical of a lot of people in this country and and sort of worldwide, uh, the love sort of started from my family. So my first memory of snooker was back in 1992 and I was around my grandparents' house and I probably never seen snooker before on the telly, anything like that. And it was during the crucible. And I remember, I don't know if it was my dad or my granddad saying, oh, Michael, look at the TV. And the BBC was showing a repeat of Jimmy White's Maximum is 147. Now, obviously, back then in 92, uh, you know, Maximums were a lot rarer. So I think the BBC was sort of, you know, showing it, you know, in between intervals and every chance they could. And I remember looking at this TV and seeing this green table and all these coloured balls and, you know, that was it. I was hooked forever. I'm signed up, you know. And um, my love, love affair just sort of carried on from there, really. I've, obviously, like I say, Jimmy was making the maximum and, um, you know, he's been my hero ever since. You know, I've been a, a huge fan of Jimmy. And I, I think my my parents said every time I used to go around my, my grandparents' house, they used to give me, like, pieces of fruit. It's like pieces of like oranges and apples and stuff. And I used to put them on the floor and I would use my nan's crutch or walking stick or whatever and, and, and hit the pieces of fruit around the floor. So <laughs> um, straight, you know, straight away I was, I was addicted to the game. And, and from there, I, um, I obviously played the game. It was interesting because where I'm in Plymouth, they, they hosted the, the British Open there for several years. So that was brilliant. So I could watch snooker live um, very, very quickly as well. Um, so I, I played snooker. I still play snooker, but obviously not as as much as when I was younger. Um, don't think I'll be world champion anytime soon. Unfortunately, I think that's uh, I think that dream's gone. But uh, yeah, just a fan and done a bit of everything. Really, I've I've um, 
I've organised, uh, I work with my local league as well. So I was competition secretary for several years. So I'm involved sort of at the local level. Um, I've obviously written about the sport. I've done a bit of commentary, um, a bit of jack of all trades, really, or jack of no trades. I don't know how to put it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just absolutely, you know, love the sport and completely addicted and in love with it. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Have you come to terms with the fact that Jimmy might not win the world title yet? Are you like me still retaining, you know, that little dream going forward? You, you never know. He's, he's only got a string, what, nine or ten wins together, isn't he? You know. Well, he'd he done well in the Gibraltar Open a few weeks ago. You know, he did really well. It's, um, it, it's strange because, well, when I was younger, I mean, it, it used to mean so, so much. I mean, in the 90s, I mean, several times, I mean, Hendry... I mean, I remember 1994, for example. I mean, that's an absolute heartbreaker. I still can't watch that black mm-hmm. now in the side and frame. It's still, I still, I still wince a little bit. And I remember crying my eyes out, literally going to bed. Mum putting to me to bed that 94, that final, and oh, just crying my eyes out. And every year, although now I'm not so, it's not so emotional. But every year when Jimmy does play in the World Championships, there's, you know, there's just a little. No, it's World Championships again, but the, the, the times where Jimmy done well, it's, you know, it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, who knows? World <laughs> Championship around the corner. <laughs> I find it amazing how many how many times do you hear people say that they started the, their first love of the game was because of the colours of the balls. That's That comes up quite a lot. And it's just, it seems such a basic thing, but it's so true, isn't it? If you're a kid, it's just really eye-catching and sort of it ticks a box with people, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's very it's a very visual sport, isn't mm. it? You, you look at the colours and straight away I was sort of, oh, what's this? You, you can't not look at the screen and, and, and wonder what it is. And obviously we know about the story about how snooker was one of the, the things behind colour television. Mm. They brought snooker in to, to test colour television. So maybe there is something in that. I don't know. But also the sound, the sound of the balls, the, the clicking of the balls. And it's a very, it's a very, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's you can see the expressions, the emotions on people's faces as well. Whereas with other team sports, faster paced sports, perhaps you can't pick, yeah. pick up on that. So there is a human element to snooker as well. Um, it's a it's a completely different sport to so many other sports as see, we see on television. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and uh, so many good points there, Michael. I, I was obviously you know p- putting all our legs about Jimmy, who was very much my hero as well. The really sad thing about that '94 night, among many things for Jimmy fans, he'd actually played brilliantly before that decider, and that's never remembered, probably rightly, because the story is he missed the black. But the irony is, I don't think I've ever seen Jimmy play better under pressure. That night, he was making tremendous clearances. You can see I'm not over it, and, and I'm not really. But, <laughs> part of me isn't. I watched it in a bar at York University. Well, I think I was in my first year of studying there. And yeah, I mean, you know, we'll come to a little bit more about the, the so-called glory days or, or or bigger days before. We, I tend to think, and I'm sure you guys agree, we're having glory days right now. But that night in 94, you know, the common room was absolutely packed. The, the TV runs that we had in, in, in the colleges at York. Uh, I think it was Goodrick College, that's right, at York University. And, I mean, was there a Hendry, was there a Hendry fan? I don't even think there was one. Everybody, got, <laughs> you can imagine it, can't you? Absolutely everybody going for Jimmy. Well, I'm, I remember the deciding, for, I mean, Jimmy played really, he did play really, really well in that final. And in that final frame, a lot of people remember he played a, a fantastic shot with a long rest. 
um, an incredible shot with the with the long rest, long queue extensions on everything like that. Um, struck a red in the corner bag, and as soon as he put that, you think, "Oh, this is it. This is the opportunity." And when he missed the black, that the crowd groaned. Yeah. Dennis Taylor on commentary groaned. Jimmy's gone back to his chair. He's slumped down in his chair. He's got his hands on his face. And even when Henry cleared up, and that typically he cleared up. Henry cleared up. Mm-hmm. That's typical. <laughs> and even when Henry won, if you look at his reaction, he potted the pink. He put his cue down the table, and he was almost gutted he'd won. Yeah. And he has said he has said since then that he was delighted he won the world championship, but he was gutted that he beat Jimmy. And Jimmy was so um, mag- magnanimous in the um, in the interview afterwards because it was his birthday and he's you know he's beginning to annoy me. And it was just it was just a heartbreaker for all Jimmy White fans. I don't think any one of us have have got over it since. <laughs> I mean, this is an audio service, but. I wish you could see Michael Day now, folks, because he's living and breathing this. You know, <laughs> the actions are all there. You know, this could have this could have been last night for all of us. You know, <laughs> us, us Jimmy fans. Never mind. You know, three decades ago, heavens above. <laughs> Michael, it, it it really is genuinely great great of you to join us. Now, we're not really promising. Uh, uh, we're not asking you to promise us uh, very much at all. We know you'll be great value. You already are. Just asking one thing. Please tell us your Wi-Fi is better than Anthony Hamilton's. Well, I'm in Plymouth. I'm in the West Country. We've only just got Wi-Fi, so I can't promise you anything. I'll be saying a few Hail Marys there as penance. That's very, very mean, (laughs) Phil. Because how good was Anthony last week? We'll we'll say more about that, Phil, won't we, later on. But we've had some great uh, reaction to that, and he he was absolutely smashing. Have you been using the phrase mad as cheese all week? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a new one on me, um, but I like it. It's been adopted into my vocab. Um, yeah, it was great. I think we knew it was going to be good value, and he certainly was. Um, yeah, had a few feedback issues, but we won't hold that against him. It was more than worth the while. Great tales, um, great insight, and just quite a unique take on things, which is uh, always good to have. I've been chuckling away a week, and it sort of struck me. Anthony's the sort of person you you know, going to the pub for a few drinks one night and you realise he probably had about six or seven phrases to the national lexicon by the end. <laughs> he just had so many of his own interesting ways of saying things. He was, he was smashing. We'll reflect more on that a bit later. Uh, we will come to your points then in this Your Views episode. But let's first bring you up to date with snooker matters on the table. It is, as uh, Bill said at the start, a, a quieter week. We're now a week away from the last really big event before the World Championship. And that's the Tour Championship at Celtic Manor. And myself and Phil will look ahead to that in our next episode. But the WST Pro Series Tour event is continuing right now. Uh, let me uh, bring you up to date with who's been getting through their respective groups in recent days. In Group J, Oliver Lyons and James Cahill have gone through. In Group H, Ali Carter and Mark Davis. Ali Carter continuing to look really good, actually. Group F, Ben Wollaston and Fergal O'Brien. Group D, Barry Hawkins and Ricky Walden. I, I like this from Hawkins. Um, I've been practising hard. Lockdown helped because it stopped me going to the pub. I wonder how <laughs> many people might might think they've missed the pub, but maybe in their work it might have helped a bit. Group P, Mark Williams and Robert Milkins. So uh, that means that basically Hawkins has guarantees his place in the Crucible. Mark Williams is all but there. And then right up to date, Sunday uh, here in the UK, Mark Selby and Stuart Carrington. Uh, got through from Group E. Now, I certainly haven't seen too much. I've certainly just been following it uh, by results. And I think uh, we might all be seeing them in the same hymn sheet there, but some interesting results, maybe turning to you, 
you first built. Uh, Hawkins and Williams at the Crucible, we're, we're used to that, of course, but it's a relief for any player when, they, when they're sort of, they, they, they rubber stamp their place, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's a couple um, that not completely secured, so it does get a bit nervy as you get towards that, you know. If, you, if you've been in the 16 for a long while and you just drop out at the end, that's a real nightmare situation. Um, but yeah, as you said, I've, <clears throat> I've sort of seen little bits of it, follow results. It's been a bit of a mix, hasn't it? I saw that group where Ollie Lyons and James Cahill came through and I thought, oh, that's great. If it, uh, sort of the younger stars, that's very encouraging. But then it's sort of been the opposite with others. You know, Fergal O'Brien played brilliantly to get through his group. I think he missed the pink on a 147, didn't he? He was a bit gutted about that at the end. I think Paul Davison did the same in his group. Um, so, yeah, some, some scenes really there. Um, you mentioned Ali Carter. He's been in superb form. Um, a lot of sort of shorter format matches, but since the new year, um, one of the form horses, really. So he's one to look out for at Sheffield um, in the qualifiers. Um, but, yeah, some interesting stuff. And because it's ranking, and it's not big prize money, but I think there are some important bits sort of low down the rankings. And Stuart Carrington getting through is quite important for his tour survival. I think he should be fine now. Um, but, yeah, um, great stuff for the guys getting through. We mentioned it last week, how it's sort of almost seen as paid practice, but great stuff if you're doing well, and it's going to give them a lot of confidence heading to Sheffield. Anything you'd like to, to highlight, Michael? I mean, when I used the word filler, when I talked about it last time, a couple of people took offence, but I didn't really mean it in a rude way. I just think it's something that's been uh, sort of invented for this season, and I, I think it's sort of, we should be grateful, really, to keep the, sh the show ticking over. But I'm hoping, in a way, it is fiddle. We're back to sort of other events, including Chinese events next season. But have you seen anything or heard anything that's interested you at all in the last few days? Well, a point on that, it's, it's live snooker every day. So as snooker fans, we don't have to tune in every day, but snooker's there. And for the players, like you say, it is sort of paid practice. And they're there for a day and they can earn a little, a good little, little bit of money there. If you qualify, I think you're on three grand or three and a half grand and then obviously through to the next stage um but for a day's work uh, a couple of grand it's, it's not too bad and it's a good opportunity for some of the lower ranked professionals they get to uh, get to play um other other top players and uh, some of the results have been interesting most of the the top players have gone through if we look um we still got ronnie o'sullivan today judd trump tomorrow it's going to heat up later this week when um the, the second phase and I, th I think the the final group phase with the with the group of eight, um, I think that'll be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll tune in for that quite a bit. Um, but but yeah, obviously it's it's an event because of the circumstances we're in. Um, we probably won't see this type of event again. Hopefully, I don't mean that disrespectfully to the to the pro series, but hopefully we'll we'll go back to some normality um, in the near future. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And <clears throat> you know, I think. Uh, Sometimes we can all be a little bit defensive. I've seen a lot of the sports I see about, you know, almost why you just say you're not watching. You don't have to follow the sport every single week intensively. In fact, you know, I'm, I've been obsessed with football all my life, but I find now, unless I'm covering a game for my work, I might have it on in the background for radio or see clips at the end, you know, because, you know, we, we, we like those peak moments and we all want to get really into the Tour Championship and we all will. But, um, you know, so it's, it's good to sort of, you know, sometimes pick and choose what you watch. And even committed fans like us, we don't watch every ball hit in the season, do we, Michael? No, it's, it's very difficult to, especially with snooker on every day of the year. <laughs> well, it seems like it anyway. Exactly. I found that with football, definitely. It's been overkill for me. Like, I understand it. It's helped people get through 
boredom of this year, but I'm looking forward to going back to the chunks of three o'clock kickoffs and you can have a few games all at the same time. Yeah, I wonder whether they'll they'll, they'll carry on this trend a little bit. That's going off topic. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that to the Guardian football podcast and the other chats at Five Live to, to worry about that, that beautiful game. It's all about the beautiful table game here, isn't it, at Talking Snooker? And it is time to move on uh, to your views. That's the name of this episode. And we've had some terrific emails and tweets in. Thank you very much. You can continue to get in touch with us. Uh, email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or twi- tweet us at Talking Snooker, our Twitter page, uh, which you have been doing in, in really big numbers again. So thank you very much indeed. We saved a few of them up, wanted to give them proper attention today. And let's kick off then with Antonio in Eastbourne. Who says, I listened to your podcast for the first time today and enjoyed it very much. So thank you. Thank you, Antonio. Very nice of you to say. A lot of people who play snooker recreationally, like myself, also watch it on TV and would perhaps listen to a broadcast like yours. And I think it would be interesting to have more information about the equipment that players are using. For example, included in the player stats at the beginning of a match could be the type of cue tip and chalk they are using. As snooker players, we spent a lot of time deliberating over and caring for our equipment, so I think it would be appreciated. What do you guys think? Best wishes, Antonio. Brackets, itching to play and starved of any table time for about a year now. Cue oiled and re-tipped, raring to go. I love that last line, nice little turn of phrase there. (laughs) It made me think, you know, I really am quite an irregular snooker player. But even I am thinking, God, I could really do with a game of snooker. So those guys that, that you know, the chaps that play all the time, you just think, God, I, you know, I, we just wish you back to the bays as soon as possible. We know how much you're missing. I know, Michael, you've already mentioned your, 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 your player, so you must, uh, you must certainly feel that. I, I'm not a big one for equipment. Perhaps I'll, I'll say that a bit more shortly. But I'm certainly not, not against this idea as well. Anything that adds to the knowledge of, the collective knowledge of the game must be a good thing, mustn't it? I, I think so. I mean, it's an interesting one because in the last couple of years, there's really been an explosion in different tips, chalks, other things like training aids, other sort of snooker paraphernalia. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we talked several years ago about how snooker's not changed in, in 100 years, but we are seeing gradual sort of technical things. I mean, the, introdu- the, yeah, the introduction of this new Tawam chalk, for example, seems like a lot of the tour are using that. Going back to um, what the correspondent said there, it's, it's interesting because I remember I watched quite a lot of darts and I remember, uh, I don't know if Sky do it now or ITV do it now, when at the start of the match where you have like a player's profile, it would say that the brand of dart, the weight of dart, um, I'm not sure if they do that anymore. Um, so it's interesting. obviously in other sports like cricket, you can see what type of bat they're using because obviously it's plastered on their back. Uh, tennis, football, you, you can see by the logo, the sports logo. In, in snooker, we, unless you sort of really know the players, you don't know what type of cue you're using and they, you don't know what type of tip they're using. So perhaps there's something in that um, at, the, at the start of the start of a match to perhaps say what they're using. I, I don't know whether that infringes on certain things or not, but it's an interesting one, yeah. Yeah, I think that was what I thought when I saw this question, the darts thing. I, I think they still do do that. It'll just say, you know, 22-gram unicorn or whatever. Um, yeah, and I don't think we need to go into, like, very, very 
fine detail all the time. But yeah, I think that would be interesting at the start of the match, you know, say what make a cue they've got, what it's made of, how long they've had it maybe. I, I found that interesting recently, how, um, you know, there's been a lot of chopping and changing of cues, more so than in the past, it seems like anyway. I think people maybe have just got a bit bored in lockdown and need to entertain themselves with something. Um, but yeah, that's interesting how, you know, some players have one cue for 20 years, some have had 15. So um, yeah, I think it's maybe an under under underused sort of stream of information, I guess. Um, and yeah, if there are any benefits to certain type of cues that are over others, that's quite an interesting topic, isn't it? I guess it's all down to personal feel more than anything, but yeah, definitely, definitely room for more talk on it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd go along with that. And it, interesting you say about the queue. I remember very clearly from my snooker youth growing up and everyone on television, you know, they would make an enormous deal. If a player lost a, lost a queue or had some sort of damage, you know, it was like, you know, the cliche of losing an arm. It would like, yeah. it's going to take ages to get back now with a new queue to get used to a new piece of equipment. But you're right, they do... They do change them more now. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really know the reason for that, apart from the fact that, you know, people do tend to sort of make more alterations a little bit now, generally, I think, when they're playing. I'm the sort of type that will probably borrow a cue, or definitely would. I don't even have my own cue when I go in, into a club, so I'm not really that au okay with the equipment side. But, you know, maybe I would get into it more if they, if they told us more. I mean, Alan McManus is one that talks about equipment a fair bit. And when he does, I always think it's very particularly interesting. But it struck me that I've, I've been hearing some voices forever and a day, and I've never heard them use anything uh, technical, really, any kind of phrase about equipment. So it's interesting. The chalk, as you say, Michael, the new chalk that, that a lot of them, the players do say it cuts down on the kicks, don't they? They say they have fewer kicks now. They, they, insist, they insist by it. And there's evidence there for, for that being the case, isn't there? Isn't there, isn't there, Michael? They do, they do seem to be fewer kicks with those guys that use that chalk. I, I think so. But, of course, that, that's only the case if both players are using that type of chalk. Mm. If one player's using the, the older-fashioned one and, and someone's using a newer version, obviously it's sort of um, there's more potential for kicks. But I think you're right. Uh, I, I can't remember too many um, earth-shattering kicks in big matches or big moments in recent times. Um, and players are always looking for that extra 0.1%. That could be the difference between winning and losing. That could be the difference between picking up a trophy or not. So players are always striving to you know, striving to, to get 100%. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I don't know how, how many of the tour are using the chalk now, but I think there's a fair, there's a fair lot of them. I remember being in the press conference at the World Championships a couple of years ago when Gary Wilson had just lost to Judd Trump in the semis and he was fuming about it. He was suggesting there should be a law brought in saying that everyone should use the town chalk um, because because it's so much better. Um, but there are still sort of a number of dissenters to that view. So, um, yeah, it's, that has been an interesting debate because some people say, yeah, you get rid of kicks, but you get more miscues with it. Um, but I've not seen any stats or anything, so I'm not sure how accurate it is. I think when, um, I mean, this this sort of in, um, chat is great for our level of snooker fans. I know when at that World Championship, I spoke to my sports editor and said, there's been all sorts of chat about this chalk. Do you want me to do anything about that? And he was like, 
absolutely not. <laughs> the people outside of sort of hardcore snooker fans then chat about chalk is, is, is a bit too much. <laughs> That's a really nice journalism moment there. Sorry about the delayed laugh. It just sort of struck me. Yeah, yeah. We're more into who said what about who and who <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who slammed who, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was at that Gary Wilson um, press conference as well. It, it always re- will remember that for how. Da- I mean, listen, lost the semi final of the World Championship. You're not going to be jumping for joy, but he was so down on himself, wasn't he? Even yeah. though he had a very good run, I don't think. But for a player of that of his standing, then to get that far at the crucible, and he, he didn't take, seem to take many positives out of it, did he? That's what I always remember. Yeah, it was a strange one. I think he was just a bit disappointed because he played really well that week, and I don't think he, by memory, I don't think he played so well, especially in the second half of that game. Um, and maybe Judd Trump wasn't the Judd Trump that we know now, so maybe he thought it was a, a better chance to win than it actually was, really, because we didn't quite know how good Judd Trump was at that stage. No, absolutely. Well, um, Antonio, thank you very much indeed. And uh, a really interesting question. Please get in touch with us uh, at any at any time. And uh, as I say, we all wish you and all of us back to a snooker club soon because there's a social element, isn't there? I know it's an obvious thing to say, but it's not just about playing. It's about getting together with our friends. And, uh, you know, that's, we just hope that can happen as soon as possible. Um, let's move on then to uh, Jay Brannan in Birmingham, who emails us to say... I'd firstly like to say that the episode with David Caulfield was unquestionably your best edition yet, and I could have happily listened for another hour. Thank you very much indeed. David really was excellent value. We'll we'll hopefully have him back one day if he'll have us. Uh, My previous email about outstanding snooker commentators saw me refer to Phil Yates as Dudley's finest. You asked who was Dudley's second finest. To be honest, Phil Yates is your answer. I foolishly forgot the late, great Manchester United and England player, Duncan Edwards, hailed from Dudley as is undoubtedly number one. Well, I'm I, sorry to go off at a tangent, but uh, you sparked something in my head there, actually, um, which will, will, in a way, be connected to us. One of the most poignant photographs I think I've ever seen in sport has to be one, if you just look this up, put Duncan Edwards' Highbury or Duncan Edwards' autograph into a Google search. It's him signing an autograph for a young fan. And it's actually Manchester United's last game on English soil. It's at Highbury, so you've got that lovely, wonderful old ground. The clock ends in the back of this this photo. And United actually won 5-4. And then, sadly, they went to... Uh, play a European Cup match in uh, Belgrade and then on on the way back unfortunately uh, a number of people died including Duncan Edwards in the Munich air disaster so it's an incredible photograph it it would be not good anyway but it's just it's so poignant Um, and the, the reason I say it's connected to us is that we love old images and we put an Alex Higgins one up on 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 talking snooker, didn't we, Phil? I think you've probably seen it as well, Michael, in recent days. And we really continue to encourage you to send us your your images, actually, because it's a, it's an incredible Higgins picture. Actually, it's with crowd in the background, Phil, isn't it? Higgins at the Irish Masters at Goffs. We'll also be talking about Goffs later. <laughs> and it's what I liked about it was I think it was the the Bayswatch account that made this point. Everyone is drawn towards Higgins. You know, he's not on the table, but they're all totally 
entranced by this character and it you know say a picture tells a thousand words but it's true in that case isn't it phil yeah that's um that was a really good point that was made there by bay's watch yeah um yeah he's he's uh he's the action even though he's not uh, at the table for sure um yeah great picture um yeah really enjoyed it no it, it, it was smashing and we continue to ask you to please please um send us your pictures your memories from the past we'd love to share them if, if you'd be so kind uh sorry bit, bit off topic but back on a little bit jay talks about more people from dudley that are famous rianne evans snooker's own sue lawley i've got a terrible terrible feeling that you two might be a bit too young to know who sue lawley is but maybe won't go into that uh, <laughs> is that true michael i've heard of her i don't feel so bad uh let lenny henry and sam allardyce well now, that would be quite a dinner party, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it would be Lenny doing most of the talking, wouldn't it, probably? Although Sam, Sam wouldn't be a shrinking violet. But, um, but <laughs> anyway, we're, uh, more on Rianne Evans later. We, we've got to, quite a lot of little tangents going on here, actually. But, my, but Jay makes his main point about the future of Marco Fu. This is his, his really uh, serious point. Uh, Marco is currently positioned outside the world's top 64 and is on course to be relegated from the tour unless he enters the world championship. I know he's not playing due to COVID, but if he still wants to play, do you think he should be awarded a wild card for next season? In my opinion, Fu is the best player to not win a triple crown event. Apologies to Dave Hendon for that term. That's a bit of a podcast crossover here. I don't think we need to have our correspondents worrying about what David thinks about the term. Goodness me. Um, it's something of a snooker mystery as to why he's not achieved more when you consider he's 10th on the list of century makers and as one of the best temperaments I've witnessed. Well, I feel, Phil, that you should answer this. Now, Jamie sent this to us a few weeks ago. We were holding it back. But there have been more developments on that story in the last few days, haven't there? Yeah. Um, yeah, so he has been given the invitational card for next two seasons because um yeah he would have dropped off tour um largely because traveling from hong kong was either impossible or as close to impossible for him to make it work so he hasn't been playing all season um and he's been yeah quite um i think it's universally uh seems a good thing that he's been given the tour card great for the game great player great bloke um so yeah that has been sorted now so he'll be back next year um, he'll be coming over with on year as well, of course. He's also got the tour card. Um, I'd say there are sort of there is an argument that some people have made that invitational cards shouldn't be given to anyone, and everyone should go to Q school. So that's that's another way of looking at it. But um, I reckon the majority of people think it's a good thing that Marco has been given his card. I would agree with that. I mean, he he is a delightful player, Marco Fu, is, isn't he, Michael? So graceful. That's the word that I scribble down here on and off the table and we're missing him aren't we frankly oh I completely agree him getting a tour card and I don't think there was much doubt about him getting a tour card um it's also we can't forget before the issue with coronavirus he had a, an issue with his eyes mm. I think he had surgery on his eyes and obviously that um that played a big part in him slipping down the rankings as well but um he's a brilliant player and he's a fantastic ambassador as well and let's be honest, that's one of the, that's the main reason why he has been given a tour card. The, um, he's very popular in Hong Kong. I believe he has some sort of title that's very similar to the MBE in this country. Um, 
fans over there have followed him a long time since he came on the professional circuit in 98, I think it is. Obviously, he's won three ranking titles. Um, and also, you talk about invitational tour cards. They gave James Watton a three. James Watton has had three invitational tour cards. but And again, that was a lot to do with the um, the effort he put behind Snooker in Thailand and the explosion in, in that region of the world. So they've kind of set a precedent, really. If you're going to give James Watson a tour card, um, I think you've got to give Marco Fu one. Um, you, you look at the Hong Kong Masters, for example, a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it was only the top eight invited, but it was an incredible atmosphere. The, the stadium was absolutely packed out. They love their snooker over in Hong Kong. And on a commercial side of things as well, I think it makes complete sense to have Marco Fu back on tour. And it's interesting, before I logged on today, I saw the ex-snooker player David Rowe on his Facebook page. I'm not sure if you guys saw it only a couple of hours before. Um, there was a picture with... Um, Marco Fu and On Yi, and apparently he just watched Fu make a six-minute maximum break. So quite clearly, Marco still got it, and I look forward to him going back on tour. It'll be fantastic. Yeah, I did. I did see that picture actually. I've seen a few updates from David over there. It seems like Marco's been knocking in maximums on, on a regular basis. So yeah, he's uh, he might not be map sharp, but practice is going very nicely for him. Yeah, I mean, I have I have a little connection with Marco Fu because. He won the, the World Amateur in 97, I think it was. And I think it was won the, the World Junior as well. And he'd become professional in 98, 98, 99 season. And his first professional matches were at the qualifying school at Plymouth Pavilions, ah. where I live. And I remember these qualifiers, I mean, there was rows and rows of tables. There was these cubicles. The room was full of tables. And Marco just kept winning day after day after day. And I remember watching him and he was a cut above the players around him. And I remember that season he got to the final of the Grand Prix. I think it was his first professional event. He qualified for the Crucible in his first year. Marco is complete class. And uh, like you say, he seems a really nice character on and off the table. So he'll be welcomed with open arms, I think, when, when he's able to come back over from Hong Kong, hopefully next season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, it, it's, a, it's a decent point from Jay about, if I could use that big three term, one of the best players not to win one of those. Um there's a, probably a few in that category, frankly. Um, and it, I, I guess it relates a little bit to what we were saying to Anthony Hamilton uh, last week when someone wrote in and asked whether they think Anthony is underachieved, which he kind of said yes, but actually also I've been at the top, you know, in and around the top, you know, you know, in, as he said, it's, it's this, this, you know, in, it's not the top, I know we joked about Hackney and Reading, you know, it's not the top, you're not number 53 or number 36 in Reading. It's the whole world. And it might be a little bit like that with Marco Fu. He's been a professional a long time now. Yes, he probably should have won more with his talent. But, you know, he's had Ronnie, Higgins, Williams, you know, go- going back before, you know, you know, people like maybe Stevens and Robertson, Selby. You know, it's, it's mm. difficult, isn't it? So... You know, sometimes we're a little, we, we are a little bit like, oh, they should have done this, should have done that. But yeah, I mean, I guess Hawkins would be in that category as well, wouldn't he? Have, have been one of those that n- nearly won one of the big three. He'd be he'd be another one that comes to my mind. But it's not um, it's it just shows, you know, Michael that you can have brilliant careers and yet still not won one of those one of those most treasured events because it's so bloody hard to do so. <laughs> I think. He has been in the era of, of O'Sullivan, Higgins, Williams. And if you look at his, his record, he got to the final of the Masters. 
he's got to the final of the UK, uh, lost in the deciding frame, wasn't it, to Sean Murphy when, when Murphy fluked that pink? He's been to the one table set up twice before at the Crucible, lost uh, a couple of really close games. One was to Salby. I think the other one was to, well, I've been to Ebden. I can't remember what year. Was it 06? Can't remember. Um, he's also made uh, a maximum at the Masters. One of only three people to have made a maximum at the Masters. And he's, he's had a great career. I mean, he's been at the top of the game for, for a couple of decades. Um, he's certainly a player that people celebrate. But yeah, there's a lot, a lot of players who fall in that sort of category of players who haven't won a triple crown event. I think Ali Carter is another one as well. Obviously, he's been to the World Championship final twice. Perhaps could have said maybe Stephen Lee when he was on tour. Perhaps he was he, he would have been another player. He won five ranking titles, I think. But certainly Marco Fu's in that discussion of the best player not to have won a, a World, UK or Masters. I think it's important not to be too, too exacting of people, isn't it? Just when, you know, like... There's very, very good careers and there's, mm. there's exceptional careers, but not everyone can do that. I mean, there's even a conversation I've heard people saying, has O'Sullivan underachieved because of his immense talent? Like, could he have won more? But I mean, how far do you go with it? <laughs> if, if the most successful player ever has possibly underachieved, then, you know, maybe we should cut people a bit of slack. I, I've seen that actually as well. I'm in, in a funny kind of way. I, I, a couple of times I've like... I mean, the, the sixth world title addresses that balance a bit. But I guess you could possibly argue for, for Ronnie's sheer level of genius, it always feels like he could have one or two more world titles because he's so amazing. But, you know, I also think he's probably won the right amount for him as a as a whole package, if that makes, if that makes sense, with his temperament, his mentality. Mm-hmm. It feels like, you know, it's right he hasn't won that machine like nine or ten. Six is still amazing. Um, and you know, loads of UKs, loads of Masters. It feels about right. But yeah, I think actually sometimes you'll see that from Hendry, Hendry uh, people in that, in that camp of who's the greatest. They'll say, well, actually, you know, Ronnie's just catching up or overtaking Stephen now. But he did it over, he, you know, he's doing it over a 30-year period. And Stephen ultimately, as I suggested before, his dominance was, was much more concentrated. But anyway, um, who, who would be the greatest for you, Mark? We, we both tied our uh, colours to the uh, Ronnie Mask. Would you be the same? What of all time, the goat? Yeah, out of those two, Ronnie and Henry, it's Ronnie for me. Yeah, but I, I yeah, it's it's Ronnie for me. I mean, we we could talk all day about that, but but mm-hmm. I I think there are a lot of considerations you have to factor in. Um, um, Henry's was was all like you say over a, a very sort of condensed amount. Of, well, not a very condensed. I mean, it was it was over a decade's worth. But Ronnie's longevity is just remarkable and you can obviously add John Higgins and Mark Williams to that category as well and as you said Phil let's let's enjoy those greats uh, while we can and we're still seeing big things from them of course now I feel um this is the right time as we're on tour cards to talk about uh, another story that's really been in the news in recent days and that is that the aforementioned Rianne Evans and Onyi are being given two-year tour cards starting next season uh, real recognition there for World Women's Snooker. And places will continue to be offered at other events like World Championship Qualifiers and the Champion of Champions. We've seen Rhiannon in the Champion of Champions before, haven't we? Giving uh, Sean Murphy a, a really good game, if memory serves. Uh, the World Women's Snooker Tour will now be basically a qualifying tour for the main tour. There are already plenty of other routes uh, out there to getting a place on tour. The Oceania Championship, Pan American Championship, African Games. Now... 
I tend to think it's a very sensible and forward-thinking move, but I think it's only right to give the floor to you, Phil, here, really, because you've had your say on Twitter, and a lot of people have responded to that. And I'd really like you to hear a little bit more from you about that. And I know you've spoken to Rianne as well. So, yeah, the floor's yours for now. Well, yeah, I, I agree with what you said there. I think it's a good progressive step. Um, I think I was just taken aback a bit by the some a lot of the negativity that was floating about. But, I mean, I suppose that's the nature of Twitter in, in many ways. Um, but, you know, a lot of people were sort of comparing it to darts and saying, you know, everyone has to go to Q school. But it's, it's just a different just different setup in snooker you know we've we're always handing out cards um through through different routes either invitational cards or the various ways of qualifying from regional tournaments or like age level tournaments um so this is just sort of another route on and it's about developing the game progressing the game you know those guys get invitational cards like we're saying about marco because it helps as an ambassadorial role because it's big in hong kong or it's great to have legends of the game on, like Jimmy White, Ken Doherty, and Stephen Hendry, um, or developing in certain countries, you know. Um, I, you know, there's no point, so I don't want to seem disrespectful to certain players, but, you know, the guys who come on through regional tournaments probably wouldn't come through Q School, but it's it's important to try and grow the game in different countries. And equally, it's important to try and develop the game amongst uh, women, because, you know, they're half the population of the world, and... In terms of people who play snooker and watch snooker, um, it's much less than 50% are women. So um, it's a huge demographic to try and uh, grow in terms of participation and uh, viewership and interest in general. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a great move for that. I think um, some of the comments as well were quite disrespectful about how they got no chance of winning any games. Of course they have. You mentioned... Um, Rianne lost a deciding frame to Sean Murphy last time. A lot of people would have seen her on, on TV. So, you know, that's competitive, I would say. Um, and, yeah, there, there's basically two arguments I can see on this, which is this, what I've just said, which is good about developing the game and it's a positive. I can see the argument that there should just be no other cards and everyone should go to Q school, which is what darts does. And that takes out any sort of debate or sort of questions about it because everyone goes on through the same route. But what what was bothering me was the people was a lot of people were sort of seemed fine with the regional and age range qualifiers, but suddenly had a quite big problem with the women's qualifiers. Um, that I didn't that didn't set, sit well with me at all, and I thought that was very unfair. Um, so yeah, go one way or the other, but don't don't discredit the women and be fine with other people coming on. Michael, would you, what would you like to say about that? I mean, it, it seems to me that Phil has some, some pretty good points there. I mean, it struck me that, um, might be a funny way of saying it, but were there no social media, um, that the chances that there'd be no social media means we wouldn't have to be on a podcast. But imagine we were sort of like on a radio programme in the past and we just knew the story without the reaction. I think we'd just be talking about it as a good thing. I don't think, you know, I, I wouldn't imagine that there would be a particularly negative reaction. I can see the sort of, Arguments that Phil says, yes, we need to be, you know, absolutely, what you know, completely meritocratic. But as Phil said, you know, on, on Twitter, there's a bit more to it than just finding the exacting 128 best players. You know, this is about, um, you know, growing the game. It's about, you know, new avenues. And it's about, frankly, you know, when Rianne play, plays and on you plays, people will be interested to watch. It's, it's good for business. It's good for selling the game. 
And um, I feel like I've, I've, I've said far too much of what's become a very long question than handing over to you, Michael. I completely agree with everything Phil said there, really. I, I was disappointed with some of the comments online. Um, I think a good, a good way to look at it is, and I th- I'm not sure if Phil said this or I read this somewhere else, you look at like the FIFA World Cup, for example, you have 32 teams at the final stages. They're not necessarily the top 32 countries in the world. You have teams from different regions of the world, and that's obviously a commercial thing to get more people involved. And if we just take away the skill element, having both Rianne and Onyi there commercially, like you say, it makes really good sense. I mean, Onyi is a big star in Hong Kong. That's going to generate a lot of interest over there. It's going to generate a lot of interest in this country as well. We've seen um, it's been on the, in the papers. It's been, it's been online. A lot of it has been talked about. Um, and Rianne, she was on the tour 10 years ago. That was a completely different scenario. Uh, she did struggle then. That was a one-year card. She's such a better player now. Since then, she has beaten, she beat Robin Hull in world qualifying. Um, she beat Te- Chira Noon in an event uh, back at the start of the decade as well. And she's a better player now. And I think she will win matches. Mm. I really do. I think she's good enough. And World Women's Snooker, the, the women's tour, have, have done some fantastic work over the last few years. They've, they've really encouraged uh, women and female players to, to play the game. And behind um, Rianne and Ongyi, we've there are a couple of youngsters on the tour I think could be fantastic from Thailand. They could potentially be even better. And this will hopefully inspire women players. If they see a women player play on the television, they think, wow, this is a we now have a route to get onto the tour. And it's only going to raise the bar. I can't see how it won't. Um, going back to the comments online, like I say, some of them were, were disappointing. I mean, it's it's 2021 and we still have venues in this country that don't allow women in clubs. Um, women have historically been discouraged to play. We often hear the the thing about, oh, why can't women play snooker just as well as men? Well, they can, but they've not been given the opportunities historically to do that. Um, I know women who have who've been in snooker clubs and feel intimidated playing in an event or practicing. And we need to, perhaps that's a more of a, a society thing but by having sort of women on telly playing professionally it sort of normalizes it if that makes sense I don't know if that's the right way to sort of describe it but I'm all for it and you know good luck to them really really good luck to them I think that's that's a you know I totally agree with that really and the FIFA World Cup point is brilliant actually you know that if it was just a meritocracy in, you know, in that exacting way, you'd have at least half the teams from Europe at the World Cup, if not yeah. more than half. But it's not like that. You know, we, you know, there are teams, more teams from South America. There are more teams from Africa. There are more of the more developing parts of the, of, of the football world. And, and you could argue, you know, quite, quite clearly that Super could have done this some time ago. I seem to remember... Uh, Phil Yates um, at one time saying that he felt that the top women players, Alison Fisher would have been a top player then, wouldn't she? Um, but back in the, back in the back in the sort of eighties and nineties, getting a, you know, why didn't they get a place in the Masters? So she's not, you know, a particularly, you know, new uh, thing. You know, you know, you're right. It's twenty twenty one. Let's sort of, you know, try try and spread the word as much as we can uh, to, to 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 female players. As you say, female females make up. 50% of the population. So I, I can see that the dissenting voices, I was surprised there were so many of them. But in fairness, Bill, when you made your very good point on Twitter, I think there was only 100% sort of, or virtually nearly 100% support for that. So, 
you know, I, I'm really interested to see how Rianne Evans and Onye get on. And, you know, uh, I know Jason Ferguson spoke to you as well. He was very happy and said, well, you know, this is a really big step for us. So, you know, I think it's generally a positive thing. And, you know, let's try and spread the game as much as we can, because we all want to enjoy it. We want it to be classless. We want it to be not, not based on gender or race or anything, really. We want it to be a level playing field as much as possible. And this is, you know, these are still pigeon steps, aren't they? But they're important pigeon steps. Yeah, and the point on it coming earlier, um, Jason's t- actually I spoke to Rianne, who was reported from Jason, but um, how they were they'd been working on developing a women's tour for a while to improve that before they made this step. That was the plan, mm. um, and certainly well before coronavirus, obviously that came at a bad time, but certainly the year before that, it did seem to be going nicely in the right direction. Um, so that's why it wasn't a bit earlier, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, another point on sort of the negativity on it, you know, there's, there's two players on tour with tour cards this season that have played one match combined between the two of them. So if we replace them with two different players, no one's missing out on very much. So I, yeah, I think maybe everyone just needs to calm down a bit about that. But I think they probably have now. And uh, yeah, especially, you know, if they win games, then everyone will get on board very quickly because... I think a lot of people's sort of complaints about it was, you know, they wouldn't be good enough to get through Q school. But if they prove that they are, then, you know, that'll shut up a lot, shut up a lot of people. I, I just want to say, so, sorry, to, but I just want to say, I think I think the players need to trust Barry and Jason on this. I mean, look at Barry and Jason's track record over the last 10 years, what they've done for the sport and continue to do for the sport. You know, this is their decision. And if having women players on the tour benefits the tour as a whole, if that sort of generates interest, if that generates sponsorship income, then that benefits everybody. So I think it's very important for people to remember that as well. Yeah, I, I think that that sort of go to Q school thing, I can see that being a player's argument completely because that's the sort of the most fair sporting argument, isn't it? Everyone gets the same shot and you're most likely to get this right, the, the best players through. So I can definitely see why players think that, but it's important to think of it from a, administrator's point of view or the the government the governing side of it um because yeah it's not all about it's not all about this this the direct sporting side of it necessarily well if you, if you also look as well you go you talked about the dance beforehand obviously lisa ashton she got a tour card through q school but the main story of the last couple of years has been fallon sherrick when she won a couple of games at the alley pally now she got through uh, a women's qualifier so there was there were two places in the world championships via this women's qualifier. Lisa Ashton got one, she got one. So people weren't complaining then, oh, she's got in the tournament because only because there's a women's qualifier. Look what happened when she won uh, two matches at the Air Palace stage. You know, it exploded, didn't it? Now she's on television. You, she, we see her doing adverts, things like that. That could be Rihanna or, or on ye. I mean, that would just be fantastic for the sport, wouldn't it? So people yeah, need to keep their, their, their minds open and this is a great opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and and it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about the the, the chalk question to your editor. I mean, that 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 world championship that Fallon show it did very well. It reminds me, you know, that the early stages. If you were to sort of say, and oh, I think you know, Michael Van Gerwen's had a sort of routine-ish win. I think Adrian Lewis as well. It's like, oh, you know, might give you a few lines. Fallon show it wins. We've got a page lead. We've got a page lead. Now, hopefully, that won't always be the case because it will become no- more normal that Fallon Sherrick and others do well, and then we won't have this thing. It's a, that's a big di- thing in racing, actually, which is one of the most, you know, getting towards more, more, more of an actual equality now. 
and the, and the, you know the female jockeys are saying, well, we're not female jockeys, we're jockeys, which is absolutely correct. There's still an element of them being called female jockeys because it's still a bit unusual, uh, you know, historically for women to do very very well in the sport. But it's all about what you said, Michael, about given the opportunities, and it's all very well to say, however, well, they won't do very well, they can't win games, they can't do this. Well, you know, let's give it some time at least, and you know, competing on the tour regularly against men is only going to improve that, isn't it? And then hopefully not just Rhiannon on Yee, but more to follow in the years after. But I think we're all singing from that same hymn sheet there. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think it's good for business if we're all disagreeing, but but <laughs> so far we're all... Should, should, we, should we sort of fashion some spat here, Phil? Um, <laughs> may, maybe not. It might be, might be good for ratings, but um, now we're pretty harmonious here, aren't we, so far today? Yeah. Pineapple on pizza. <laughs> no by the way <laughs> oh i'm actually all for that so yeah there we go no i'm i'm with michael on that very weird only, only belongs with cream or ice cream or, or something for afters not not on a not on a pizza no um <laughs> right let's let's move on then to john shelf in furswood and he says hi guys enjoying the pods Read your chat about commentators. I have what may be a controversial view. For me, snooker is better to watch without commentary. I like the mid-session analysis, but during the game, no commentary is great. For me, it really adds more to the viewing experience. It transports you into the venue. It can feel more tense too. No constant chatter, and you can hear any chat between the players and refs too. You can't just hit mute on the TV for this. You still need to hear the table sounds. That is obviously essential. The only way to do it, as I like at present, is to watch the streams on a bookmaker site. I realise this isn't for everyone, so if any listeners can think of another way of taking away the commentary, please let me know. I really do advise all your listeners to give it a go. If enough of us did that, maybe the broadcasters would give us a commentary-free option. Now that's the dream. Cheers, guys, and keep up the great pods. Uh, who maybe wants to go first on, on this one? Phil, sir. Oh, uh, it's verging on a controversial opinion, isn't it? Saying that no commentary is better than commentary. Um, I mean, I, I do watch like a reasonable amount of games like that. Um, the ones that are sort of on the outside tables on, on bookie sites, because sometimes there's one that, you know, interesting looking game that isn't on the main table. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's all right. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's better than without than with commentary. Um, I do find, because quite often I'm sort of working at the same time, um, so it's very hard to sort of keep track of a game that you're watching in silence because uh, you're not always looking at it that closely. Um, but, yeah, no, I think there's, there's a good mix to be had, isn't it? Obviously, sort of in, certainly in long games, there are quite long periods of silence anyway, and that can be nice for a bit, but... Uh, no, I, I, I don't quite go as far as John's view in thinking uh, we need to scrap commentators entirely. I think they do add something. And, and Michael? Well, I think it's personal preference, isn't it, commentators? Uh, you see people online on Twitter talking about certain co- combinations on the BBC or Eurosport or ITV. I, I prefer having commentators um, commentate on the game. Although it's interesting what, what Phil said there. I've, I've been watching quite a lot recent months on the Eurosport player so if you're watching table two there's no there's no uh, commentary there's just the sound of the, the arena sound and I watched I remember watching um, Jordan Brown versus Mark Selby at the Welsh Open 
last month in the quarterfinal. Now that was on table two and that didn't have any commentary. That just had the sound of the balls and obviously the referee. And the climax of that match, the way it was in the deciding frame, it was so tense without the commentary. It was it was an incredibly you you could you could really feel the tension, especially with it going down to the black. And I think Jordan got to the stage where Salby needed to, you know, snookers on two occasions, Salby got them, and obviously Salby has that there, there was something to that. There was an element that I've not really experienced before. It was fantastic. But in general, I prefer commentators, but I do know there are people online who would prefer without. So it's interesting. But like I say, if they want to do that, there there are sort of avenues you can watch games without commentary. I think Eurosport players one, that's really good sort of value for money. Um and there's obviously other bookmaker sites as well. You can watch outside tables. But but yeah, I, I guess it's whatever your personal preference is. Yeah, good way of saying it. Um, I've never really heard anyone say that, I don't think, or not much in, in snooker. I've heard it a lot in football. People say they get driven, driven mad by the, the constant chatter and they, they love to, to have a no commentary option uh, for that. But I've not heard it too much in snooker. I mean, I, I generally love sports broadcasting um, and I, I sort of always have really. Uh, I've worked in broadcasting myself and I wrote a series about sports broadcasters. So I really do tend to love the voices we hear. That's an important part of I think the sort of general snooker and, and sporting experience for me. Um, but I know we had a brief chat before, didn't we, Phil, about this pod? And I was sort of saying, we were both saying really about how, you know, you don't particularly like when there's a, a lot of silence sometimes now. And it reminded me, you know, it's hard to sort of, you know, get over the change in trends. And, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, sometimes... They'd be silent for so long, sports commentators. <laughs> the one that came to mind was Dan Maskell in tennis. You know, literally like five or ten minutes, brilliant rallies, players diving around, volleys at the net, brilliant. You know, oh, I say. And that, and that would be it. <laughs> oh, I say. But, um, you know, it's, but the trend slowly, slowly became, we'll talk a lot, we'll talk all the time. And it's almost like, yeah, Maybe not justifying why they're there. It's a different way of saying it. But we, weren't, we were saying that, weren't we, Phil? And uh, the trend is now for them to, to talk. We always expect them to sort of analyse nearly every shot, don't we? Yeah, I think I think the, getting the balance right is important, isn't it? I think silence is, is very important and certainly not just speaking for speaking's sake. Um, but yeah, that, um, that, how you describe that tennis. I mean, it happens, it's bound to happen in sort of, long form games isn't it? it happens in cricket sometimes and it happens in the snooker um but I, I just find it sort of you don't notice it for a while and then you sort of zone back in and you think they haven't said anything for absolutely ages <laughs> like, um so yeah I think yeah silence is important at the right time but uh yeah no, I, I wouldn't want to go back to those days where it's just sort of 10 minutes or so with nothing going on but yeah as, as Michael's saying it's personal preference isn't it yeah but it, 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 some of the true true greats have always uh have always known you know certainly historically uh, to use words sparingly and it, particularly in cricket Richie Benno comes to mind you know he would he would make every word count but then again mm. as time wore on perhaps even Richie would have to talk more because the you know as time has progressed commentators do you know seem to you know, constantly fill the, the airspace with with their views but anyway I love broadcasting John and hearing commentators John doesn't necessarily I'd like to hear your views please we we'd like to have your views on that please Email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. And Monique Limbo, who's always welcome to contact us on this uh, particular podcast, she, she has 
a range of views and is a real font of knowledge. So we have a few from her here. Here's a thought about the big upset tag for the Welsh Open final. The bookies were making Ronnie a massive favourite and the pundits went along with that. I don't get it. Even before the match started, I thought that was crazy. Yes, I made Ronnie favourite on experience and because he had played well and looked up for it, but not a massive favourite. Not after the way Jordan had beaten Mark Selby and backed that up with a proper demolition of Stephen Maguire's. Stephen Maguire, what do you guys think? Uh, I think it's a valid point you make, Ronnie. I personally think that it was right that Ronnie was a really big favourite for, for that uh, for that final because he's been doing it for decades and Jordan had never been in the final. So I can see what you're saying about Jordan playing well that week. You know, and maybe we should have thought, yeah, he's going to take that into the final as well. But I personally thought that was that was about about right. I mean, what about you, Michael? Yeah, I think it probably was about right. I mean, before we start, actually, a, a point that I don't think many people have brought up about Jordan Brown is obviously he's in his 30s, but this is only his fourth season on tour. And really, I don't count his first season because that was 10 years ago and that was when there was only six events and he had a one-year tour card. This is only his fourth season. He's won a ranking event. I think that's quite a big, that's quite a remarkable achievement. But going back to his victory for me is the biggest upset in a ranking event ever. Uh, we, we talked about sort of Dave Harold in 1993 and perhaps Karen Wilson at the Shanghai several years ago. But what Jordan Brown done that week um, at the Cowick Manor was was remarkable. And he'd climbed so many mountains to get to the final. He'd And so many deciding frames as well. Did he come through like five or six deciders throughout the week? Something incredible like that. It was an incredible route through. Um, beat Salby, absolutely trounced Maguire in the semifinals. But it was a completely different task against O'Sullivan in the final it was over two sessions obviously it was for a ranking title with a prize money everything that goes with that invitations to like the champion of champions it got them in the players championship and obviously Ronnie is the world champion too so he almost had to climb another Everest in that final and he done so well in that deciding frame that break into deciding frame was utter utter class to win it in one visit that's exceptional. And it is one of the most remarkable snooker stories ever, in my opinion. But go, going back to the odds, uh, I mean, you, you could argue Ronnie was under a little bit of pressure because he was kind of in a, in a no-win situation where everybody's expecting him to just basically turn up, beat Jordan Brown. But Ronnie had obviously already lost in a couple of ranking finals since um, earlier on this season in the was it Northern Ireland and the, and the Scottish. So perhaps Ronnie was under a little bit of pressure and you could see that early on, even in the early frames, it just didn't sort of go right for Ronnie. But but yeah, um, I think the odds were about right. But congratulations to Jordan Brown on uh, a victory that we'll be talking about for, for years and years to come. I think I think maybe the only, I agree with that. The, the only reason that it would be a bit closer in the odds than maybe it should have been, it was the lack of crowd. And I don't want to take anything away from Jordan's victory. And I, I said it in previous pods. Sort of, we've we've done we've had had like a year long experiment now without crowds, and largely it's still the same players that win a lot of the events. So I don't want to discredit it at all. But I imagine a packed crowd for his first ever ranking event final against someone who's been in so many, so experienced with it, um, that might have made it a bit tougher. And maybe the fact that it was behind closed doors should have. Um, made the odds a little bit closer. Um, but yeah, that would be my only slight point. Um, certainly, I don't think 
I can't remember anyone at the start of that game thinking Jordan was going to win at all. So I mean that that demonstrates why they were why Ronnie was such a favourite. Yeah, no, it's a, all, all very good points there, uh, and I, we're still getting people tuning in for our Gordon, a Jordan Brown episode, uh, Phil, and that just shows you know people, you know, are still reveling in that tremendous story. It really was one of the great stories, as Michael said there. Uh, now let's move on to another point for Monique. The rest day is not a rest day at the UK Championship, which I think is something I said. It's a day the BBC, who start their coverage in the last 64, used to install their equipment and test it. The lighting, the cameras, the studio, and the arena is just not available for matches. Yeah, I think I made the point that maybe you, they could scrap the rest day and have uh, the UK semi-finals uh, on successive days. Um, but then maybe go back to my other idea, that idea, they could run them concurrently. I mean, Michael, we've had our say on the UK a few times now. Would you like to see a sort of extension to the UK in some way to go back to sort of the, the old days of longer matches? Ideally, yes. Um, certainly the the latter rounds, if, if in an ideal world, perhaps from the quarterfinals onwards would be perfect. But I think we've got to remember it's a very, very different uh, broadcast is very different now to what it was perhaps 20, 30 years ago when obviously there's multi-session matches in the UK throughout. Um, now, obviously, the BBC and, and other broadcasters will kind of dictate what what's required for them to obviously show the tournament. Ideally, I would I would love to see a long longer matches um, from the last eight onwards, but that might not be possible. And it's kind of a trade off, really. You talk about playing both semi-finals at the same time. Um, what would we prefer? Would we prefer to you know have a one table set up best of eleven, or would we have two tables? of the best of 17, best of 19. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you, you look at the UK Championship before Barry took over in 2010. I think it was played in, well, where was it played? Oh, I can't remember, Telford. That was it, Telford. And the crowds are really sparse. And it kind of makes sense to have these best of 11. I know this, not a lot of um, snooker bloggers and fans will agree with this, but it, it does make sense commercially to make the matches shorter for the early rounds, but certainly I would prefer to see uh, longer matches towards the end of it because it has behind Masters in terms of the pecking order, I think. I think it goes um, UK Masters Worlds now, but uh, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I think that's a very good way of saying it there as well. And uh, I think Jordan Brown will be happy. I think I um, elevated him to, to Gordon Brown a short while ago, for, <laughs> former Prime Minister. He's, this is... Yeah, this is, you know, he's making it. What a, what a year. What a ride. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> um, one more point for Monique, who is someone that, that clearly is across every element of snooker. She says, regarding Goffs, the pictures from the seniors events are mine. It's a great venue for atmosphere. The Irish crowd is very enthusiastic and very fair, but you can really only have one table in it. It's significantly smaller than the Tempodrome or even the Crucible. It's also not particularly easy to get there unless you have a car. It's in the middle of the countryside. Well, I'm pretty sure that you won't have been there, Michael, although me and, me and Phil haven't. So we can't really speak exactly for that. We'll, we'll take your word for that. But I think the one table would be OK, uh, wouldn't it, Phil? I mean, you mentioned the Tour Championship could go there one day. So there's no reason why a prestigious event can't, can't go to Goths, even if you can only fit the one table in there. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, it obviously limits the options um, of which events could work there. But um, yeah, the Tour Championship seems the obvious answer to that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it just—it's just so—it's just, so, just so revered by so many people. It seems a shame that we're not using it while we can. Um, so yeah, obviously that does limit the options significantly. But um, still, no reason not to use it when we can. And just on a wider sort of geography point, Michael, are there parts of the of the UK? I mean, I know you're you're down there in the southwest. Are there parts you don't think we utilise enough? You'd like to see tournaments spread a little bit more. Are we fair enough with the, with the sort of spread ge- geographically? Well, my closest tournament now uh, would be the Welsh Open, so in Cardiff. But even for me, that's that's probably three hours getting there on on, on trains or, or in a car. We did have the British Open here for several years down at the Plymouth Pavilions that I mentioned before, and that was really well received. I mean, even though we obviously are down here in the country, <laughs> effectively. Um, Plymouth for the, for the people around us Plymouth's quite an easy place to get to and it, the crowds were fantastic throughout those years and I actually I, I remember the British Open got stopped because there was some sort of uh, clash with the, the venue it had been double booked or something like that and the British Open got moved I think to either Newcastle or Bournemouth I can't remember and it's never returned but when we've had Premier League night we've had Premier League nights here and uh, Jason Francis Snooker Legends have brought events here always big audiences so I would you know from a, a selfish point of view I'd love to see snooker down here in the west country a little bit more but going back to golfs golfs looks a fantastic arena doesn't it I mean I've watched things on YouTube obviously this is a very different scenario but I don't know if you've seen the final between Alex Higgins and Stephen Hendry mm. I think in 1989 I think on YouTube it's marked down something like Higgins's last hurrah and Higgins beats um, Henry in a deciding frame and the atmosphere and that deciding frame it was like a football match it yeah. really was like a football match I remember Higgins he drops in a yellow from the yellow spot into one of the the, the top corner pockets and he sort of rolled it in pocket way he, the crowd are geeing it in geeing it in <laughs> and it's incredible I've never ever heard an atmosphere like that before in a snooker game it's it's it's, it's awesome obviously it's different because obviously it, it was it was Alex Higgins but I just feel whilst the Northern Ireland Open is in Belfast, I'm not sure whether or not there's space for an event in the Republic of Ireland, if that makes sense. I think it would be well received, but I'm not quite sure that's feasible at the current minute because there's there's one in in Ireland, as it were. But Goffs is a remarkable, remarkable venue by the looks of it. And like I say, it might not be as big as the Temperdome, but that creates an atmosphere itself mm-hmm. if it's quite intimate and, and, and close in. So... Uh, who knows? Hopefully in the future, you might see it on the circuit again. Yeah, good way of saying it. We do have one in, in Belfast. We have one on the, on the island of Ireland. Uh, and it, that that's one we, we miss so much. We really miss that this year. We miss so many of the venues that we love, of course. And we just can't wait to get back to them. Hopefully next snooker season. Uh, last mm. time I spoke to Barry Hearn, he was reasonably confident that in, in a UK sense, we'll be going back to some of those favourite venues uh, when the new season kicks off, particularly as we head later in the year into the autumn. Um, let's move on then to um, the new BBC nostalgia documentaries that we're going to see, I think, at around about the same time as the World Championship. Uh, we know Louis Theroux's uh, production company is going to be making these programmes. I uh, do understand they're going to be a bit special, including some really uh, wonderful archive material. 
I'm talking sort of stuff we've either rarely seen or never seen before. A uh, bit of sort of views either way, and I'll reflect that with a couple here. The snooker journalist Marcus Stead uh, contacted us on Twitter to say, uh, Clive Everton, at 83 years of age, says that nostalgia is best consumed in small doses. He is correct. It's fine to look back on the golden era, but let's not live in it. There's a lot to enjoy and appreciate about modern snooker. Whereas Better Q says, always need to appreciate the history of the great sport, in my opinion. I think in 30 or 40 years' time, there will be documentaries on Ronnie O'Sullivan, so I see no difference. I'm all for these shows. Now, Michael, I saw you had some interesting views on this on Twitter. And I, I think, you know, <laughs> I don't want to put words in your mouth, you say, but maybe sometimes you think we might talk a little bit too much about those old days. Well, I'm going to be a bit of a hypocrite here because I will watch this, this new documentary, of course, <laughs> I watch it. But um, I did put a few things on Twitter and, you know, to get a bit of reaction. I didn't mean to be disrespectful to anyone's opinions or anything like that, but I just I just feel this documentary, for me, we're not going to learn anything that we don't already know about the 80s. And whilst it was a golden age, um, it was basically the, the first age of professional snooker, that makes sense. Before, that, obviously, snooker, the World Championship, had been played since the 1920s, but that was the first age of snooker. And I'm very appreciative of, of all the players and the exposure, the foundations they've laid for the modern game. But I just feel we, we do, there is a danger perhaps of looking in the wider media, looking back instead of forward. And we're in a golden age now where more countries, more players around the world are, are watching, competing in our sport. And I just feel as if to the outside world, they might think, oh, the glory days of snooker have gone. Look, they're reminiscing at the eighties, etc." And, and, you do have to say as well, there are some bad things as well to come out of the 80s. And some people have images of snooker that will stick forever. And I think that's sometimes detrimental to when we're trying to get sort of sponsors into our sport. I don't think it's so much of a problem in other countries, but there are certain businesses that, I don't know, kind of think snooker, it's had its day. We don't want to get involved with that. So that, that was just my, my, my point. And perhaps it's a, it's a little bit deep. Perhaps I got too too deep with it but um i'll still be watching it and I, i'm a big fan of louis through as well so you know I'll, I'll still be watching it but uh yeah look forward instead of back yeah it, it might be one of those where it's it's uh, more for casual fans of snooker that just will enjoy that sort of reminiscing or maybe people that don't know much about snooker at all and they, they see that as sort of the uh, the most interesting part of it. But yeah, it's, it's a funny mix, isn't it? Um, you don't want to dwell on the past. And you, you're right about that. I really get I agree with that point you made about um, the image of snooker, because it it does need to move on from that for, in a commercial sense um, basis. Um, but I, I'm certain it will be an enjoyable documentary as well. I'm sure Th through doesn't make much bad stuff. And it's about snooker, so I'd be watching it, whoever was doing it. Um, but yeah, it's a funny mix, but I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but I think people sort of get the nuance now. I mean, if, if this is going to go down the, the route of, oh, snooker was special, you know, only special then, and, you know, the 18.5 million for the, for the Black Ball final, and, you know, there's no characters, then, then, it's, then it's wrong. It's not a great thing. But I think people see the nuance, hopefully, that the old days were special, 
but so is the game now. And again, I hope we're not being naive. I hope people can maybe watch these documentaries and think, actually, that's a snooker tonight, isn't there? Let's put that on what's happening in the game now type thing. I, I'm really looking forward, forward to seeing them. I'm a big fan generally of sporting nostalgia, snooker nostalgia, so I'll really look forward to it. Um, but uh, yeah, but while I, I think about it, a few people have pointed out that actually Eurosport have got a documentary on last year's semi-finals. So that's a nice counterbalance. And that, that was possibly the greatest day in the history of, of, of that tournament, the World Championship, and maybe even snooker. It was, you know, so extraordinary. So, you know, let's let's talk about the old days, Phil. Let's talk about last summer as well, eh? Yeah, I mean, that's that's beautiful. Con- uh, compare and contrast, won't it? We'll see how they both come out and uh, what they look like. But, I mean, yeah, what, what a day that was. Absolutely superb. It was. Now, we're, we're ticking uh, down towards the end, folks. So th- thanks, for, thanks for sticking with us here on Talking Snooker. Your company is always most welcome. We are going to bring you some reaction to that Anthony Hamilton episode. What a delight that was. And thank you so much, so much reaction. We've had stories on Eurosport and in the Express. And I know on, on Metro as well, Phil, uh, courtesy of your good self, the phrase mad as cheese is spreading like wildfire throughout Snooker <laughs> and beyond. And uh, let me just read a few of the comments out. Universal uh, praise, we're delighted to say. A cluster of reds, who's always a, a very valuable voice in the snooker community, says, just finished and it was a really excellent listen. Quite refreshing to hear Anthony talk about such a variety of topics so candidly and with a laugh. A fantastic discussion and questions from both Nick and Phil. Really enjoyed it. Uh, one from Iranu, who says, this was a brilliant podcast. Anthony was great and wonderfully honest, as always. Good to hear clarification of the World Championship withdrawal as well. I feel like Fawlty and Hendon deserved to mention when discussing good commentators, though. Well, I think we've both, me, myself and Phil, have said that's our number one duo, and virtually everyone else that's written to us has. So those two are getting their dues, don't worry. Phil Seymour, the announcer, says, lovely to get a mention on Talking Snooker with Nick and Phil. Thank you, gents. Great work, as always. Superb guest in Anthony Hamilton. Always an interesting bloke. Thumbs up. We love those, Phil. It's <laughs> turned the emoji into words again. The old cut and paste. Michael Hughes says, great choice of guest, interesting and honest interview from a legend of the game. And, you know, I think we, it just shows, Phil, that, you know, Anthony might not be the biggest superstar in the history of the game, but heavens above, what stories he has to tell. And I think we're both probably in agreement that he would be a good addition to the commentary box, wouldn't he, in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's incredibly well respected within the game. Uh, I've known that from sort of the interviews I've done with him in the past um, every, everyone is uh, hanging on every word really and uh, he didn't let us down on uh, on this medium either uh, and yeah if uh, he's got he's got to get involved in commentary or punditry um, and hopefully hopefully this has helped push that forward a bit a bit closer and as someone pointed out we did over a hundred minutes with Anthony and we didn't mention his nickname which I think we thought afterwards, oh my goodness, no, we didn't. That was a bit of a, maybe a faux pas. But then I thought, I'm quite proud of ourselves in a way. It's, we don't want to do the obvious thing here on Talking Snooker. We like to go a bit a bit off-piste and not mention something that's that probably you, you think would come to the forefront at some stage. But Michael, do you listen to the Anthony Hamilton episode and, and, and what do you make of him as a snooker character? He's pretty priceless, isn't he? Oh, I loved it. Ham- Hamilton for PM. <laughs> He's brilliant. <laughs> fantastic um 
you know, he's he's another player as well. He's he's been in the game what for nearly thirty years now, so it was a really really good episode. I really really enjoyed it, and I know I don't know anybody who's had a, a bad word to say about Anthony Hamilton, and hopefully he he will still be on the tour um in the future, but if he does fall off and doesn't want to go back on it again, I'm sure he has a career in punditry or commentary because I'll certainly be tuning in. Yeah, amen to that. A uh, couple more lines for you then before we wrap up. Uh, World Snooker Tour have confirmed the story I broke a few weeks ago that the World Championship will be used as a pilot event for the return of fans to sport. Now, it's obvious already there are going to be different reactions to that. Anthony Hamilton told us last week he thought it was effectively madness. He doesn't agree with it. And that's fine. You'll need to have a test this time before going into the crucible. Uh, Some people will will have been vaccinated by then. Some people won't. Let's maybe not go too much in the pandemic side of it. But it looks, Phil, like we are going to have fans there. And not everyone will agree. But, you know, from a pure sport point of view, health must come first. But from a pure sport point sport point of view for posterity it's nice to know that when someone wins the tournament they'll be doing it in front of people and not at an empty crucible which would have been let's be honest a pretty sad sight yeah definitely look it's got to be safe and it sounds like it um it will be it sounds like there's more measures this time than there were last time in terms of testing and everything um but yeah it'll be a huge morale boost i think to have the first crowd of the season at the world championship um, it'll make it feel all the bigger of an event and it'll be great. Um, it was a real sad time for sort of the guys making the debuts last year in front of no one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I know a couple of them, like Elliot Slesser especially, was I spoke to him just before the tournament last year and he, he sounded like he didn't even want to go and play in it. You know, it was really that, it took the edge off that much. Um, so yeah, um, from a sport point of view, superb. Um Obviously, I don't want them taking any risks, but it doesn't sound like they are. They're being very cautious with it. Um, and, yeah, so it, it sounds like a positive, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is quite a lot of caution in terms of people going. Um, ticket, I'm sure tickets will sell, but there'll be a few people who aren't quite ready to go back yet, and that's absolutely fair enough. Um, so we'll see, yeah, but it, it's something to look forward to, I think. And Michael, have you got anything to add to that? I mean, maybe put them on the spot a bit, but would you... Would... Would, would you would you decide to go if 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 we if this is definitely going to be a pilot event or would you sort of play it safe this time? Um, I looked at the the article that World Snooker Tour released a couple of days ago, and it looks very very thorough, doesn't it? It looks you know it looks very well planned and it's science based, so we have to trust the science. Um, would I go? Um, I think. It's, it's great that fans will be there for the players. I mean, you look at the World Championship, I go back to darts, which is another one of my passions. You look at the last World Darts Championship, the Ali Pali, it was a bit sad at the end with Gerwin Price lifting the trophy up um, in front of nobody. Um, and last year, we were. it was fantastic that we were able to get fans in for the final because that would have been really sad with Ronnie lifting the trophy aloft with nobody there. I, I, would, I would go. Yeah, I mean, because it's science-based, the government have been involved, but we have to trust that. It's not just something that Barry Hearn has, has on a whim, sort of set up himself and all this and that. It's part of a proper plan, and I think we should be proud that snooker, once again, is is being part of trying to 
get audiences back to big sporting arenas, both indoors and out. So, yeah, let's trust the science. And it's great that fans are going to be there. Even if it's not a full capacity, we will have an atmosphere there, hopefully throughout the 17 days this time. Yeah, and it's it, it's sort of fair to, to sort of say, isn't it, that snooker, as you suggested there, has been at the forefront, really, in the pandemic era. And that probably may not have been true of, of past regimes, I think it's fair to say. I mean, snooker was the, the, the pretty much one of the first to, to start off. I mean, when I've spoken to Barry Hearn, he's been absolutely uh, vociferous in saying that snooker has been brilliant with all the protocols, you know, up there. But he says better than Premier League football. He says it's absolutely exemplary. And I'm sure that record, he, he's not likely to talk it down, is he? But I'm sure <laughs> that, that record is, you know, and what happened last year must be a factor as well. So we'll look, we'll look, we'll look ahead to that. And look forward to that and keep an eye on that as, as, as the weeks build up to the Crucible, now just a month away. And of course, qualifiers are, well, even shorter time away. And we're going to have two extra days of those, another news line that's, that's come through, with uh, best of 11 matches for the first three rounds, then best of 19 for the last round. So that magical period of Sheffield Snooker is nearly upon us. And you know what? I think for a lot of fans, they love the Crucible, of course, but the qualifiers are just a ma- Sensational, aren't they, Michael? For pure, the essence of snooker, the essence of drama, you almost can't beat that qualifying, can you? Oh, it's it's like a tournament in itself, isn't it? And there is so much on the line in those qualifiers. It's the last event of the season. And players, not, not only is it for the most prize money they'll play throughout the year, players are also playing for their tour cards. They're playing for their careers, essentially. There's so much pressure. When we've seen it at Ponds Forge or the... Institute for Sport in Sheffield, the arena, there's so much pressure there because they're trying to qualify for the biggest event in snooker. They, they're, they're playing for big money. They might be trying to keep their tour card. There is just so much on the line in that. That's what I mean. For example, we talk about Jordan Brown. He qualified last year. He needed results in the qualifiers to stay on tour. If he lost, he might not have been on tour. He wouldn't have won the Welsh Open. So really, really big. And I really look forward to the World Championship, even though the early rounds have gone back to best of 11. Um, that That's a pity. Hopefully it will go back to best of 19 next season. But uh, yeah, really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think there was that story last year when Jimmy Jimmy won his first round game, didn't he? He beat Michael Giorgio. And obviously the, the story was Jimmy was getting close to the Crucible, but that meant Michael was off the tour. And that was, I mean, heartbreaking. I spoke to him afterwards and, you know, he, you know it's just the end of, potentially end of a career, but he's going to look to come back on. But, you know, there's so many, like, intensely interesting stories beyond just winning and losing snooker matches at those qualifiers. Actually looked like Michael's had a nice year. He's been posting on Instagram. He's been on a beach in Cyprus for most of it. So don't feel that bad for him. It's all right for some, isn't it? Um, <laughs> nicer beach for, for Michael Giorgio. But let's, uh, I think, think about wrapping up there then. Uh, gentlemen, it's been great to be with, with you today. And uh, myself and Phil will be back next time with a preview of the Tour Championship. We may be a day or two early. We're not always going to stick to Mondays it's, uh, when, it, when it doesn't make sense. And it might not this time because we'll have so little value about a preview if we go then. So do, do watch out. We might be with you a couple of days early. But we're, we're already looking forward to the Tour Championship, aren't we? I mean, it, it's established a precedent, hasn't it, the last couple of years for being absolutely brilliant, Phil. So, you know, it's, it's got a lot to live up to. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Top eight players, um, top eight players this season as well, which really does, 
you don't get anyone who's not playing well. Um, yeah, it was great last year. So, and it, it feels like as good a, a precursor to the World Championships as you can get now, really. So, yeah, really looking forward to that. Uh, Michael, you've been absolutely brilliant value. Have you enjoyed coming on? You have to say yes. <laughs> it's been brilliant. No, I've I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Sorry if I've rambled on, but I, I just love this. I love snooker. I love the sport. I want what's best for it. And I'm just a big fan at the end of the day. Looking forward to the Tour Championship, World Championship. And uh, thanks for having me. You haven't rambled on. You've been brilliant. The only thing is now, Phil, a bit like when David Caulfield came on, it's Michael that's going to get all the attention this week, aren't they? Isn't it? You know, they're going to be saying how great, great he was. Michael, before you go, when can, where can we read your stuff in the, in the days and weeks to come? Run that through for us again. Um, well, probably best nowadays is to follow me on Twitter. So I'm at ViewQ, um, where I put, uh, like I say, I, I do contribute, contribute uh, a fair bit to the WPBSA. So I report on amateur snooker around the world. And I've got a few things coming out this week. Uh, that could be of interest to a few snooker fans so uh follow me on twitter um or the, the qview facebook page thank you michael and sincerely we do appreciate your your company today and please do come back and see us again uh, another time and uh, phil well we're back for the tour championship uh, episode coming up uh, uh, probably next weekend but uh, but for now i think we'll say our goodbyes and uh Enjoy the next few days in snooker, sir. Enjoy, enjoy spring. I don't know, is Cheltenham quite your thing? I'll be absolutely consumed by that. Maybe not in your case. Not a big horse racing fan. Um, I was actually meant to go last year. I was meant to go on the Friday, um, but then pulled out the last second because of everything that was going on. Um, but yeah, I'm sure I'll watch a few races, but I'll watch a bit more of the snooker. Um, but yeah, and I'll see you next weekend. And, and thanks again to Michael. It's been brilliant to have you. It certainly has. And... Uh, well, for now, thanks for joining us on Talking Snooker. You can tweet us at Talking Snooker or email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com. Uh, thanks very much for your company. Uh, from Michael, Phil, and myself, it's cheerio for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.